0: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Bagara and top of the morning to you. It's St. Patrick's Day. Lo a And who better to talk to us on this day than a bona fide Irish national treasure and wise woman of Ireland, Marion Keyes. Her new book is again Rachel it's a sequel to the beloved Rachel's holiday which was published 25 years ago since then Marion has sold over 35 million books around the world bringing joy to so many readers and anybody who follows her on the twitter machine knows the laughs she gives us there too we spoke about bringing Rachel back about being an irish woman and about growing in confidence as we get older it's always a pleasure to have marion with us Happy St. Patrick's Day and enjoy. Marion Keyes, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Thank you for having me,
1: Rosie Ingle. I am delighted to be here.
0: We always love to have you, Marion Keyes. You're one of our original friends of the podcast, and we're delighted you're here and delighted to talk about again, Rachel, because it's 25 years since Rachel's holiday. My favourite book. Well, along with this charming man, they're my two favourites. And it's your 15th novel and it's a sequel and a sequel that you said you'd never be doing a sequel. So what happened and how's the response been?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a great story about why I decided to write a sequel. And I haven't. It's just that I really love the Walsh's that were in, you know, all five of the sisters got a book and I loved the family. And I had actually tried to write a sequel to Watermelon about, about seven years ago, I think. And it was it was a disaster. And I don't know. I don't know what was different this time. But a story came to me about Rachel and Luke and they'd split up but it wasn't it wasn't an obvious thing I didn't want it to be just you know that he was a fucker like all of them in the end and that he was you know Mm -hmm. it was something that maybe mm, I think most readers don't see coming and I had this idea and I was interested in it and I I wanted to give it a go because I just really wanted to write about their relationship really and I also wanted to be back with the Walters. so I started writing it properly March two years ago just as as Leo was given the the St Patrick's Day address yeah. and uh and we were all in lockdown and like suddenly I could only see my mother if I stood at her gate and roared in at her and like I'm very close to my brothers and sisters and their kids and all and suddenly there was nobody mm. so the Walsh just sort of became my family and I know that sounds very kind of um Oh, my characters tell me what to do and all of this stuff. And that's not the case at all. Like my characters don't. But there was a comfort in it that kept me writing. But I was I was all the way through. I mean, I I said I'd stop writing if I thought it was not good enough or if it was a sort of a betrayal of, you know, the earlier book, because a lot of people really liked Rachel's holiday. And I was ready to walk away. And I thought it was all right and that I didn't need to walk away. But I was dogged by the fear that people would be just, ah, here, you know, you've ruined the first book as well as this owl. And it hasn't been like that. It has been lovely. It's been really, really lovely. A kind of above and beyond anything that I'd expected. And it's very weird to have written something. A quarter of a century ago when I was a very different person, really, and for it still to be relevant and for to be able to pick up the story and make Mm. and make and people for people still to care about Rachel and her family. Like I feel incredibly lucky, like for lots of reasons, but to have been allowed to have a career that long that I was allowed to write the sequel now. If that makes any
0: sense. It totally does. And do you think when you think back to Watermelon days and uh, those first writing days, do you think you'd have believed it if someone had told you like that 25 years later, this was going to be the story?
1: No, because I mean, quite sincerely, when I wrote the first book, Watermelon, I was given a three book contract and I was really anxious because I thought I could probably write one book. But the idea of more was very daunting. Um, And I, I was worried that if I couldn't, would I be sued or how would I manage it? And it was just pure luck that the first book I wrote, there were five people in the family. So I was able to give five of the sisters a story. All of it was just. Just like stumbling around in the dark and kind of finding a door. That I hadn't known was there. No. So making a long answer out of it. No, Roshin, I wouldn't. I wouldn't at all. Like, genuinely, I wouldn't. You know, I didn't know how it would go. But I knew that, you know, that like there's ups and downs. There's, you know, and that a a lot of people have one or two books in them. And then and then it all goes to the dogs and and they have to go back and train as a nail technician, which is something I've always kind of always wanted to do um it's always been my comfort you know when I can't do anything with the words it's like oh well, yeah well I love the nails and the colors and that
0: <laughs> do you know what knowing you you'll probably do it anyway as a hobby sometime
1: well you see I love anthem with color and beautiful things and like I know you get fabulous nails done and um, I just
0: went to tropical popicle to get my nails yeah. done in the colors of your book for your I book know
1: yeah. like I mean that was so lovely of you but like <laughs> you appreciate it as well. And I think a lot of people do, you know, that you can have little works of art at the end of your fingers. Like I appreciate that. I like, I like colourful, beautiful things. Mm.
0: Well, when I think back to Rachel's holiday and reading it all those years ago, for me, it was, it's hard to describe it, but it was like when I read it and I didn't know you at the time and I just felt like I hadn't been seen or I hadn't been represented in a kind of popular fiction novel up to then. And obviously there's people like Edna O'Brien, but that's different. It's set in a different era and even Maeve she as well. You know, again, a lot of them were in the past. Amazing. And I love her writing as well, as, as you know. But it was like, I think for me, it was recognising myself and my experience as a very messy, complicated, not perfect Irish woman. That drew me and I think so many other people to Rachel, you know, so I think you did something quite groundbreaking. And the other thing was as well, the humour, because it's something that we've talked about before, which I feel is very underappreciated and underrated in in writing, because people think that anybody can just do it, which, of course, we know is not the case. So I think it was that combination of I saw myself, for the first time, perhaps, as a young woman from Ireland, but who lived in London, who wanted different things, who didn't fit the mould of what Ireland had told us young women were meant to be. And then the hilarity as well combined. So that was my kind of introduction to you. Thanks, Roshan.
1: See, the thing is, and I didn't realise what I was doing at the time, but like, OK, you're a good bit younger than me, but like I was a second waver, um feminist in that like when I came of age just as the second wave had run its course and I was told I was post-feminist and that like the world was fantastic. Now, women were equal to men and all opportunities were ours. You know, I could be anything I wanted. I could, you know, aspire to earning like tons and tons of money, just like the men's. You know, I could sleep with anyone I wanted and nobody would judge me. And, um, you know, and like I was on the ground and none of these things were true. And also, none of my life, my messy, badly paid, life full of yearning for love and, and for someone to love me, none of that was represented in popular fiction at the time. It was all still, you know, wish fulfillment stuff like boardroom takeovers. Samantha stalked into the boardroom on six inch heels. She pointed at a young boy, you know, at a young man and said, you Go and take your clothes off and get into my bed. I'll be with you in 10 minutes when I've sacked everyone here. You know, like it was all that sort of shite. (laughs) But there's nobody like me, you know. And like, it was a shambles. My life was a shambles. You know, I never did my laundry. I never had clean clothes for work. I was always late. I never had any money. I always picked the wrong men that quote bad boys, which is just the most tragic phrase, you know, like they should not be called bad boys because they are not boys. They are men. They are bad men. Also, I have to take part of the responsibility in it. You know, I mean, I didn't have the self-esteem. I didn't have the self-esteem to pick people who were nice for, to me. And I also didn't have the imagination to realize, you know, that a nice man who was nice to you doesn't have to be dull. So, yeah. So, just by writing about my shambolic life i struck it was timing it was timing because like you like there was a whole generation of women going where are we yeah. in all of this where why are there no books yeah. about lim- women like us so you know i look back and i just think look and timing had so much to do with mm. with the fact that my first couple of books sold and you know i think the irishness helped because i mean you know i i say this a lot like irish people i find irish people so funny um you know because i i lived in london for a long time but like my flatmates were always irish you know like i kind of clustered as many irish people to me as possible cuz with the best will in the world we are funnier mm-hmm. than other nations you know that that that's the unpalatable truth i'm afraid and i always notice it like if I've, if if i've been in in the uk or wherever like other countries you know and this isn't to say that other people aren't funny it's just that kind of collectively ireland ireland really punches above its weight and i think we take huge amounts of pride in being funny Like I noticed it from the second, like I arrive in Dublin airport, like the passport men make an effort to be gas. Like they do. You know, like the last time I came back, I was like, do you want to see my COVID pass? And he goes, I know you have an honest face. (laughs) That is, that is actually not very helpful. I could have had, you know, I might not have had the vaccine and I would have been sent on my way because the passport man wanted to be gas. But, like, I was prepared to take it. He was prepared to take it. And probably everyone in Ireland would have been happy enough yeah, Grant, she actually didn't have a vaccine at all. She doesn't have the passport, you know, but like it's it, it's grand because two people got a laugh out of it. You know, we value humour above other things. Obviously, I'm being lighthearted here, you know, before, before. You don't before. have to explain that. Yeah, you know, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, honestly, humor, if
0: yes. I, I, all our listeners have a very well-developed sense of humour and they know you were having a laugh. Yes. And, you know, that's, yes. That's, we don't have to explain. Thank you.
1: Funny, do we? Yes. No.
0: Which to is to, Irish
1: you'd women have to this in other countries, yeah, you would <laughs> Irish, Irish women understand,
0: yeah, so the response has been incredible, and let 's just uh, catch up a little bit with Rachel without any spoilers because there'll be lots of people, some people who haven't I know it's sold loads already, but there'll be still some people who are saving it for a holiday or saving it for a special time to read as well, so she's still sober, which is great she 's older she 's with a boyfriend called Quinn. And um, thank God Luke comes back into the picture because the thing about Rachel's holiday as well, apart from the bit we've discussed, which is, you know, the representation of a certain type of young Irish woman that wasn't to be found anywhere else is the sexiness of Rachel's holiday. Like Luke was such a ride. The real men, all the everything about them, the leather trousers, the kind of the way you wrote sex was just so kind of fun and again, not kind of good sex, actually, because I think a lot of us have been having very not good sex. I don't know about you, Marion, but like, oh, yeah, there have been a lot of bad sex and actually a lot of unpleasant sex. So it was lovely to, to read again about, you know, fun and joy and sex that wasn't full of shame and guilt and all that kind of thing.
1: Yes, I mean, it's true. I mean, I think almost every woman I know of, you know, my age and, and, and lots that are younger as well. Yeah. You know, we kind of take bad sex as kind of like the default almost you know it's it's kind of rare that somebody is is generous or you know but yeah it was really lovely well first of all to acknowledge that you know young Irish women were having sex outside of of the sacred vows you know and it was lovely to write and write right you see oh you see Hey, Jesus, yeah, bro, you to know, ride, yeah, wasn't? Right? Yes, it was, it was, yeah, and like one of the reasons, really, that I wanted to revisit Rachel wasn't really Rachel at all. It was Luke, <laughs> um, and yeah, he was, you know, like I think of all the men I created, he's the one that has kind of um caught the imagination the most. Because of the capers of him, you know, with the long hair and the leather trousers and the, the
0: capers. I love that word.
1: Capers, the shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> the
0: like absolute it was... shenanigans.
1: And at the start of Rachel's holiday. Uh, no, at the start of again, Rachel, they, they've been split up for, for six years. And like everyone, you know, will presume that he was a terrible man. And it is trust me is all I, I, I keep saying to people who are like who said they're afraid to read us. like trust me you know because i want the same thing as my readers like i wrote the book for me and there was no way that he oh well i can't go into too much you yeah. know but i just say one thing and for those of you who have read the book mammy walsh has a surprise 80th birthday party that she entirely plans herself you know i mean it is like she is right down to the last thing but after the party rachel goes home and she is accompanied uh, by a visitor and uh, I spent 14 months waiting to write that sex scene you know like I was writing writing the book and I'm thinking oh god there's all this plot and all these other characters I've got to I've got to do the backstory the the washes and everything when can I get to this fabulous ridey bit and writing it was I mean writing sex scenes is often mortifying because everybody thinks everybody thinks it's me and I you know I suppose it's i have to say like i'm I'm fairly vanilla you know i don't have a great deal of imagination and and i feel a bit ridiculous writing writing you know uh, group scenes would put it that way or do you know what i mean anyway i really enjoyed this particular scene and uh put a lot of work into it and uh
0: and it paid off, Marion, Well,
1: Marian, uh, paid well off? yeah, people seem to be pleased. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so she's she's 20 years older. I said it in 2018 because I just couldn't be coping with Colvis. No. Whole business, you know, I just couldn't, you know. Um, and she is back in Ireland, living in Ireland, living in Wicklow. She's got a dog called Crunchy and she is working in the cloisters, which is where she got clean. And there is a cast of characters in the cloisters that I just... I love them so much. Like writing them was so lovely. And then four of her four sisters, three are living in, in Dublin, Claire, Margaret and, and Helen, and Mammy watch, and Daddy Watch. They're all still around. Anyway, so Luke's mother dies and he comes back to Ireland for the funeral, and Rachel goes to the funeral, and things things ensue.
0: They do, they do way. ensue, and it's it's brilliant. And like you say, there is a sort of a Something that comes at you in the middle that you don't see coming, which is again a really testament to your great skills at plotting and writing, which have just I think, with every book have kind of increased and developed. And I think I know you you are really proud of grown ups, particularly and the kind of that that took you into a different level in a way, and even the way that was received, it was it was a it was a point. But that's just such a wonderful book. But going back to the sex for a second, because um, you're a great one for allowing characters, even as they age, to keep having really good sex. And, And that's something that's important to you.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it breaks my heart that women are portrayed as withholders of the sex and that most women don't enjoy sex. But they use it as a sort of a negotiating tactic. I mean, that's not my experience. You know, I mean, sex, you can have it when you're past 24, you know, it's allowed, um, or even 44. But like, I think it's sex, you have a relationship. One has a relationship with sex the way we have a relationship with anything. And there are some parts of our life that, you know, it's really good and other parts where like you're so distant from it. And then, then things change. I mean, you know, without getting into too much detail, like people in their early forties, people women who are perimenopausal suddenly have, you know, a kind of a resurgence of their youthful energy, we we'll put it that way. And like, and that is it's not just hormonal, it's almost like a primal response, like this is our last chance. Um, yeah, and I I suppose. For any woman who's just like, ah, look at I'm grand. That's all in my past. And uh absolutely it's fine. I'm not, I'm not making anyone do it. But for those who like it or who want it, I don't think anyone should any woman should be made to feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the right circumstances with the right person. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way of connecting. And I you know it can be great fun if it's for you. You know, and if it's not for you also, that's fine. All I'm trying to say is that, like, I don't like all these stereotypes, all these kind of boxes that women are put in. You know, that we are like, we're the bald girls in our 20s and and then we're supposed to kind of settle down and have the babbies. And then I don't know, after the last baby is born, it's like, that's grand. OK, everything shut up shop here. You know, like that's that's the end of that, you know. We live longer Mm. than that Mm. and uh, we're living longer than ever.
0: And speaking of babies, actually, it's interesting because that's another thing that society puts on us, and I know that's something that a lot of women and indeed men do want, but also there's other people who decide not to have children and for various reasons who can't have. That's another kind of interesting conversation that I think is getting less censorious in a way. But I still think it's seen as for some people a failure, you know, and you didn't have children. But I know you've spoken about that as a kind of I think you said to someone in The Guardian about the ghosts of the children that you you didn't have, which sounds very um, maudlin, but you didn't mean it in that way. It's just a natural thing to think about.
1: Yeah. Like I come from I mean, it's not that big. There's only five of us, but I like I like a big family. Like I always wanted to have six children. Like, I know. I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's it's ridiculous because I know, like I've seen it, people have won and then they have to be hospitalized with exhaustion or they'd (laughs) like to be. But like even now, sometimes myself and himself will talk about what life would have been like and what they would have been like. And I mean, the thing is, I mean, children are their own people, you know, and parents don't own them, you know, and like there would have been. All of that, you know, realizing that they don't belong to me, that I'm just I'm just there to facilitate them. But I, I honestly think it would have been great fun, and like you know how close I am to my nieces and nephews, yeah. and I really like when there are throngs of keyses together. <laughs> like I I just I don't know what it says about me, but I like to be able to put out my hand and touch three or four nieces and nephews at any one time. I like different ages. I like different energies. I, I feel very safe in my family. Yeah, I would have loved it. Yeah. So when I say the ghosts of children, I just, yeah. I mean, there are times even now when we talk and say, well, what would they have been like? And I mean, we're only, we're only like making it up because how would we know? Mm. Um, but yeah, the thing of like, the way people feel that it's okay to say to people, so uh, when are you thinking of starting uh you know, like it's nobody's business. You know, it's it's very, very rude, I suppose, and hurtful because we don't know what's going on for people. And then, you know, for people who decide, look, I'm grand. I don't want to have children. They terrify me. I, and I don't want to be bringing people into this awful world or, or just I don't want somebody who might be corrupted by being like me or whatever. Whatever the reason, when people decide not to have children, when they're childless by choice, OK, it's not as censorious as it used to be. But there's still that thing of like, Oh, you're unnatural. Oh, you're a bit of a witch, aren't you? You know, kind of like, what's wrong with you? And it's like, it seems to me to be very sensible to decide not to have children. But like, yeah, you can't win. I think, especially if you're a woman, there's ownership is taken of every part of us, Mm. you know, what we look like, what we work at, what we, you know, whether we decide to have children. No, you've had too many. Now you better stop it. Um, you know, what you wear what you eat, Mm. you know, of what you enjoy, like everything.
0: And it's not just um, women as well, because I was speaking to a a male relative of mine recently who hasn't had and, you know, was talking about the kind of pain of it for him and how how he had to sort of learn to cope with this and and deal with this. And I I think that thing as well, it is a very private feeling and it's not something that everyone can talk about. Like he hadn't talked to me about it before, and I was really privilege to to listen to him because it's a big subject and not something you just chat about yeah
1: and like I shouldn't be just um limiting it to women it's just that I suppose women are regarded as still you know as the ones who are meant to do it yeah but you're right it causes men a lot of pain if they sometimes a lot of pain if they don't have children you know um And I suppose, yeah, like if they're questioned about it, I think people are less likely to question men, though. Men just get more respect in general. People respect their boundaries more than they do with women. Women
0: belong to everyone is kind of that feeling. That's true. But I think when I was going back to him, I think it's more that it was a life that he expected to have that didn't Mm. materialise. And I think that is something that's difficult.
1: Yeah, you have to grieve it. You have to literally grieve it, you know. You can't just decide, oh, well, sure. Like, you can't. You've, the emotions have to be felt and endured. And, like, emotions will take however long they take. There's a massive difference between our intellectual self and our emotional self. And intellectual self, you can just make the decision quickly. The emotional self is unknown. It's, it's beyond our control, really.
0: Yeah, it's a tough one for many people. I'm conscious that there'll be loads of people listening who, in various different ways, are are struggling with the things that we're talking about. So, but just I do think talking about it helps, and people being able to share. You know. It, you know?
1: yeah. I mean, definitely, the more that's spoken about it, like you know, anything that lurks in secret remains unhealthy, or you know, or shameful. But mm-hmm take anything out of the darkness and it's never as bad. And why should anyone feel ashamed for deciding not to have children or for not being able to have them or for having five of them?
0: Or eight. It's like that man in the taxi You said to, when my mum told him. <gasps> she was in that taxi, do you remember? And my mum said do. that she had eight kids and he said eight. dirty bitch. Imagine, I'm, <laughs> I still oh, find it amazing. The lack of respect. How dare he? <laughs> How dare he? To Anne Ingle.
1: Dairy, Anne Ingall. I mean, to anyone to anyone would be wrong, but Anne Ingall, I am outraged. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: Marion, when you think back at Rachel sort of 25 years ago and creating her and the stuff we talked about earlier about what kind of woman we were supposed to be and really what was the reality that you weren't seeing. So when you look at younger Irish women now, since it's Patrick's Day, we could look at the Irish woman and the new wave of Irish women. What, what I know being close to younger women is really important to you and it's something, I know you've got Emma and you've got like great young people around you. What... Do you look at as the difference, say, between those women and say what the women and you were, the woman you were and I was in our 20s?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you're absolutely right. I mean, and young Irish women gave me so much courage, especially around Repeal the Eighth. They, they don't have the shame that I have and they don't have the fear of expressing their opinions that I had and sometimes can still have. You know, they're, they're far better at like calling out injustice or calling out bullshit. They're far better at knowing what they're entitled to. I think the decline in the power of the church has really influenced how they are as people. And it's funny, I was in the UK at the weekend and talking to Kit Deval about it. And, you know, we were saying how Irish women are are far ahead of Of so many other nations, like when you look at what's going on in the U.S. with access to abortion, Mm -hmm. you know, for and like it was young Irish people who drove the the whole repeal the Eighth, the campaign, the Citizens Assembly. You know, it was okay. Like it wasn't just just young Irish women, but like they were part of the army. In a way, like I was afraid in the beginning to put my hand up and say, I actually think Irish women should be allowed to have abortions in Ireland, you know, because of the fear of all the kind of, oh, you baby killer, you know, that you'd be getting from all of the types. And like the young women just didn't care. They thought this is an injustice and we'd like it to change. And like that was people power. And obviously there were men involved in it, you know, men that were part of that army there were more women and like there's no way that um it was Enda kenny wasn't it that he called the uh citizens assembly he wouldn't have done it if he hadn't been sort of boxed in i mean he did his best you know and obviously the eu were at him as well but he was ducking it and like it became unavoidable for him and then the citizens assembly delivered the truth and i mean and they they were so the government of the day were like oh for fuck's sake gonna have the fucking referendum for whose fucking idea was this? You know and <laughs> in the, in the well, see, look what you've yeah, gotten done now. Yeah, you you big lewd Ramon, look at what you've drawn down on top of us. And the thing is that shows the power of grassroots politics. You know, that was not that was not party politics, that was not parliamentary politics that brought that about. It was young Irish people. Mm-hmm. and all and some older ones, and I think the more the numbers swelled, the more it gave people like me permission to to not be afraid mm-hmm. and like the amount of work everyone put into it, like the canvassing the going door to door, and it was so ugly, it was such an ugly campaign, it was so mm-hmm. harsh and brutal, and the judgment and the fact that like the um the pro choice side were doing it with Very little money compared to what the forced birthers had, you know, because they were getting so much money in from the US Mm. from the far right. And I think Irish people should be incredibly proud of what they achieved simply by having opinions and voicing them and banding together. And it was an incredibly powerful thing. You know, it was the most important political thing I've ever been part of. And like I can see like that even, you know, that a lot it kind of politicized a lot of young women and, you know, that they may not be going for parliamentary politics. And I mean, I can hardly blame them, but that we kind of know what it's like when we can galvanize groups. You know, we can be part of like a mini little revolution. Mm. And, I, and I'm quite serious about it, that like we pushed back against the tide, really, because the tide is washing in the wrong direction at the moment with regards to reproductive rights.
0: And if you think about it, that, we're going back to what young women are like now, so the lack of shame, perhaps the the ability to speak up when they feel something's wrong. They don't have the baggage, I think, that we had around... Lots of even if we were, as you said, you know, second wave or liberated people, we were still had this hangover thing that would come in and corrode our thinking that we had to yeah, shake off. Toxic
1: shame, without a doubt. Yeah, and it, it's a, an extraordinary sort of a self policing mechanism. You know that it's like we were programmed. I mean, you had, you know, a, a different kind of mother. you know, so you're like, and you're younger than me. So like, you didn't have it anything like as bad. But yeah, like not only were we taught, I don't know, to be afraid of authority, but we were almost, it's the same as if we were like uh, programmed, like a chip was put in us. Mm. And like, I felt it like anytime I said something, you know, sticking my head up above the parapet, I'd automatically feel like this corrosive wave of shame mm. that like had me wanting to die. Yeah. Like literally like a hangover, you know, and I'd have to wait it out. Like, like it, there was a really high price for going against the prevailing mores.
0: Yeah. I mean, like you say, I got away with a lot of it because I had an English mother. So she'd come from a different yeah. place and she didn't have necessarily the baggage of, she had other maybe baggage of growing up in 1950s, you know, England. But yeah, I think I got away with it a lot. And then the fact that like my dad wasn't around and the fact that I, I kind of always had this very um, anti-authoritarian uh, streak in me anyway. So I kind of didn't really go along with a lot of the stuff, but I think that was maybe a little bit unusual as well. And again, I think that even that you're not that much older than me, but those years actually can make a big difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I agree. I mean, women 10 years younger than me are quite different. Like, they're not as prone to the shame.
0: Mm. Does that stop Marion though? Because, like, you know, you did come out and speak about repeal when, in fairness, many other people and, you know, it's not about naming any names, but a lot of people decided, you know, strategically and carefully, and that is their absolute right not to put their head above the parapet on that issue for good reasons in their own cases and no I wouldn't judge anybody for that but you did and so I think it's a kind of interesting how you talk a lot about that shame and and you you do talk about not feeling confident in your voice. And but at the same time, I don't know, whenever it's really counted, that's always what you've done, despite the fact that you might get, you know, the brickbats thrown at you. Thanks.
1: Yeah. I tell you, I did. I mean, as I said, I was given courage. I was given courage by people like you, Mm. you know, because you shared your story and Tara and then, as I say, like my niece, Emma. Who I, you know, cannot go more than 20 minutes without mentioning her name, you know, and Louise O'Neill. And like there were all these young women. And I thought it was just I felt they're saying it, and and they can take the the backlash. And I think it was when I decided, uh, when I was writing the break, and that was I think 2017, and I decided I was going to put an abortion storyline in it, like a young nice. 17-year-old girl who travels mm-hmm. um, for an abortion in England. I did that um deliberately you know because I knew that we were coming up to something big and I thought maybe maybe lots of people don't realize the trauma of of traveling you know to have an operation in a different country and then having to travel back and then having to not tell anyone about it and I think by then I had been given the courage I mean I remember my mother telling me at at the time that like that I would lose sales. And I remember thinking, I don't care. So, yes, I mean, I have definitely gone. I'm really comfortable now talking about it. And it's funny with this, the publication of Again, Rachel, I've always found, you know, the publicity around a book, a very kind of double edged sword in that, like, I'm so grateful to have, you know, the coverage, but I also sort of hate myself I can't watch myself afterwards. I can't the sound of my voice is unendurable. And I think, oh my God, listen to the the raw I'm talking. And it's funny, it hasn't been like this this time, you know, and like I have been present. I haven't felt like I'm having an out-of-body experience. And I I haven't hated myself and I haven't gone, a, you know, on that awful kind of debrief into the early hours thinking oh Jesus you didn't say that you know And like that was par for the course for so long so maybe I'm finally outgrowing it I mean God it would be such a relief I'm telling you it would be such a burden lifted off me
0: yeah but it also gives hope I think because sometimes it does you know you feel like well I always be but I'm finding that I mean I just turned 50 in October and I, I am definitely Something is happening a little bit different, and I I couldn't quite put my finger on it yet. But I feel like there's a shift, and maybe that's just the case that it does take that long. And maybe to to not be so hard on ourselves when we're in our you know thirties and forties, wondering when are we going to be fixed? You know, I yeah. always was wondering when I was going to be normal, yeah, and fixed me too. and better. You
1: know, <laughs> yeah, I I think the fixed and the normal no is going to evade me forever. Me too. <laughs> But I think you know most people aren't as fixed and normal as we might think, um, and I think change is very slow. You know, it, it just doesn't kind of arrive uh, like a bolt from the blue. But another thing I've discovered is like I don't have the energy as much to to, to angst about things. Yeah. You know, like one of my awful things that bothers me is like thinking of Christ, I I said something and I might have upset someone. Like, I don't even know for a fact that I did, you know, but I'm there thinking, oh, fuck, you know, better contact them and see kind of what humor they're in. And now I think, oh, look, if I said something stupid, it wasn't deliberate and and it'll be all right. And then, yeah, yeah, you know, so, yeah. So it things. Yeah. But change happens slowly.
0: That is a really important one, because especially if we're striving sometimes to change things or make things better, when we don't get really fast, instant results, a big sabotage thing can be, well, you're you're just a loser. You can't do that. You're not able to do that because you haven't seen a big, massive shift.
1: Yeah. But if you look back maybe 10 years. Well, you know, I can. I can say, right, I'm better. I'm better now at handling X situation than I used to be. You know, I don't panic in the same way or I can just be honest in a way that's easier for me. Yeah.
0: Now, we mentioned hangovers, so we should probably talk about that. You don't have any anymore and haven't had for a long, long time. Is it 28 years or longer? It's
1: 28. 28. It was 28 years in January. Yeah. Amazing. I know. One day at a time. (laughs) I know. Yeah. But it does all add up. I feel again, I feel so lucky. I mean, anything is possible for me so long as I don't drink and if I hadn't got sober when I had I mean I'd probably be dead I mean that's the best thing I could hope for that I wouldn't be alive and I am and I'm glad of it I'm very glad of it today um you know and I I always say to people who are kind of worried about you know their alcohol consumption or their their drug intake um and I I I thought my life was over. Like I thought I might as well be dead if I couldn't drink. I thought alcohol was the only good thing in my life. And I was so wrong. And it's like I still have a laugh and I still have great fun and I still have adventures. And I'm not slowly killing myself anymore. And like it takes a lot of courage to kind of walk away from the love of your life. But it's possible, like I see it every day. People can do it, so if there's anyone out there listening who's in the horrors about it, try and get the help you know if i if I was able to stop, I think anyone could because it was it was the centre of my life, and now, now I don't make a show of myself, I the like as often
0: <laughs> um now your relationship with your mom has changed a little bit in the last few years I mean yeah your, your daddy died in 2018 and that's so sad and that grief kind of I'm sure lingers on and continues but um you've talked about your different relationship with your mom as well so tell me about how she is and maybe the influence that she had on you and continues to have on you even now
1: yeah like she's she's like she's an amazing woman she's a very very entertaining very strong personality but she is immensely devout and she really wanted me to be good you know like she wanted a daughter who didn't make a show of her who you know was good at things and like I went to university and I did law and she was just you know she was really proud of me and so was my dad but I think he was more accepting of like whatever I, you know, whatever I wanted to do, where she just wanted me to have a nice, respectable job and a nice, respectable man, you know, a nice, respectable husband and a respectable, you know, respectable. And I was none of those things. And like I really hated being judged, you know, through her through her holy prism. And uh and like I love her, like I've always loved her. But like we've clashed and we've been different. You know, we've had different opinions on everything. And then through the pandemic, she just astonished me. Like she was living on her own because dad had died and she couldn't see any of us. You know, she couldn't touch anyone for months at a time. And I know this is sort of hilarious and first world problems, but she didn't have Wi-Fi. She didn't have Netflix. (gasps) You know, I mean, and then. Then she had a cataract on her eye and she couldn't even read for a while. So all she had was the phone and the radio. And like she stayed incredibly buoyant, upbeat, optimistic. It was astonishing, you know, and I, I just developed so much respect for her. And, you know, we are getting on so much better. And she's always been very like. And I understand very conflicted about my books because, you know, they're they're not respectable. You know, like like she was so upset in my first book, Waterman, when Claire had sex with somebody she wasn't married to. Like she was genuinely appalled, mortified it would be out in the world, confused. But she's the biggest cheerleader for again, Rachel, like she's been she's been really kind of teeth gritted and clenched fisted about it. she's like this is a great book you know and she's
0: kind of different and I feel feel very very lucky and do you think Marion do you think that she has um changed I mean we talked there about aging and our and changing our attitudes and and different things happening and I think change is always happening and do you think the pandemic maybe um had some kind of effect on her at all? Or is that too big well, a sort of reach? I,
1: I mean, I think I changed rather than than she changed. Like the only thing I'd forgotten about this, and, and this is important. The only thing that gave her any real comfort was when RTE put mass on at half 10 every morning. And like sincerely, because mass was closed, you know, like the churches were shut. And like, I realised that it was her lifeline. Right. and. You know, and it made me see it in a different way. I mean, I still absolutely, you know, I despise the Catholic Church. I I cannot overstate how much the contempt I have for it. But I saw that for her it meant something different and that it kept her going when there was nothing else. So I think my attitude to her comforts changed. And I think the fact that she wasn't getting judged by me meant that she felt it's safer to open up with me. You know, it's that thing that they always say, it's like the spoonful of sugar rather than the barrel the full of vinegar. You know, that like she was getting love and support from me. And then she thought, all right, so I'll give it back to her. You know, so. It, it's that.
0: Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. So what are you up to now, Marion? And what are you writing?
1: Nothing. them. Like I, like I literally haven't had the time, you know, because I didn't finish the proofreading until November. Then I did the audiobook of again, Rachel. And then I it, the audiobook of Rachel's holiday. Then it was Christmas. And then I was into publicity. And so I was doing, hang on, if I tell you, I was doing Ireland, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Norway, and Spain. And now I'm in Canada. And the US, yeah, and so that won't be probably tied up till the middle of April, and then I suppose I'll have my head back. But I'd love—I mean, this is kind of—I'm very loath to leave the Walshers now. Now that I've—I've I've kind of got one successful sequel under my belt, I'm—I'm—I'm uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, mm, I know. So I had a great plan to do a, a completely different thing of you know, kind of a 40-year spread thing and people who were friends back in the day and how they are now But no, I think I'm feeling the world is very sharp and pointy and scary at the moment and I want to stay in a safe place. So I'm trying very hard to figure out another Walsh story.
0: Ah, well, that's interesting. And yeah, you obviously had a beautiful, or whatever, I know it's hard, it's always hard writing a book, but um, a lovely experience in it, in that kind of bosom of the Welsh family It was a nice place to be during the pandemic.
1: I loved it. I loved writing it. They felt like my own family when I couldn't see mine. And yeah, I found it immensely comforting and I loved. I mean, it's a love story as well as everything else. And I'm not ashamed anymore to say that that is one of the things I do. Like I write love stories and that particular one has really, it just made me feel I just felt it, I was my first reader, I suppose, with that. I mean, you know, I wrote it for me initially, although I kind of do that with all my books. I think if I'm bored, no, it, it has to go. But yeah, I would like to, I'd like to do another Walsh one if, if, if I'm given the story.
0: And what about your hobbies? Because we've seen you go through a lot, you know, the banjoing yeah. of the furniture, the painting, painting. the I've various, nothing. the cooking, I, the baking.
1: Yeah, I've nothing at the moment. I've nothing. I'm mortified (laughs) but like I honest to God I haven't had time you know it's been it's been very very busy I think at the moment my hobby is people just because we're allowed to see each other again I'm enjoying it I can't tell you how much just you know having the chats it's lovely
0: so you've got publicity for another while now off all over the world I mean you've sold 35 million books it's an incredible achievement and you're fated everywhere like you know you you truly are a global superstar of literature and we did a thing on the late late as a big tribute to you and I yeah. I mentioned James Joyce in in the same breath as you because I do think there's that kind of you, 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 exceptional what you've done is so extraordinary and it's not done by very many people, you know? And I think sometimes I do think though, if you were a man, like the amount of kind of, I mean, we've had this conversation before and we don't need to, to go on about it, but I just, I do love to say Marion Keys has sold 35 million books because it's just phenomenal and it's, it's amazing. And it needs to be shouted from the rooftops all the time, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Thank you, Roshin. Yeah. I mean, I do think the fact that I write about women makes my books. Oh, kind of to be regarded as more of a niche thing, because anything that's done by women is given less weight than an identical thing done by a man. You know, um, the male story, the male voice is regarded as the the default one. And what women does is sort of a subset of that, you know, something a bit niche. But I think, I think I've talked about this so much that I have bored people into submission. Oh, Christ, if she talks about the patriarchy again, I can't, just stop. Um, And yeah, I think definitely the last two books I've written, again, Rachel and Grown Ups, people have been, you know, the broadsheets, the serious papers have been, okay, fair enough. You know, she's good. Now come Yeah. She's good. We're, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And now can she, she just make her stop? That's fine. Just make her stop talking.
0: Oh, uh, it's, Well, it's, as always, it's beautiful talking to you. And it's Patrick's day is when this podcast is going up. So before we go, maybe what do you love most about Ireland? And maybe we could talk about what maybe we think needs to change still and what we could improve. So, first of all, I know you love the banter and the crack and storytelling and all of that.
1: I love it so much. I mean, I feel it the second I arrive. Um, I just we take pride in a good conversation. And, you know, almost every exchange of words is an opportunity to kind of show your flair. Like, I sincerely love it. I mean, it's a real thing. Um, I, you know, I just love that people talk, people are nosy, people will ask questions in a charming way. I mean, I just, I think we're very warm. What needs to change? I mean, okay, I mean, the main thing that really needs to change is that we have to stop electing people who treat the electorate like children. You know, they infantilize us. And so many people vote for the two main parties out of not just habit almost a fear i think that something will happen to them if if they if they vote for you know a smaller party um i think we have to break that tradition and i think we have to start sincerely looking at political parties whose values align with ours um and i think i mean there to me housing is just the most the most important at the fact that licenses are being given to you know multinational developers to build projects that then are rented out to Irish people it's all wrong it is such a betrayal it's such a cruelty that our government continues to visit on us and they expect us to think it's okay you know they take us for idiots because we have always behaved so Oh we've always been so not complicit that's the word but acquiescent we've done, to this. Uh, yes yes acquiescent of their of their corruption and their their patronizing disregard for us mm. Yeah I mean that matters our health system matters you know these are the fundamentals they say it's going to happen I would really like to see the end of direct provision it is just the most stomach turningly oh it's just a terrible 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 thing to do to people who are already incredibly vulnerable and I really think you know future Ireland will look back on
0: this and be just so ashamed. You can't help contrasting with the fact that there's 6,000 yes ukrainians here at the moment which is absolutely incredible and so generous and kind but part of me just keep the disconnect between how we've treated other people who've come here equally vulnerable um yeah hard to is it down to race
1: is it race? is it because the ukrainians are white you know i don't understand i mean you know obviously my heart goes out to the ukrainians and they are so welcome and you know we are I think there's been a real again, I think Irish people are lovely, you know, there's been a real welcome and people have really tried hard to raise money and to get things for them and you know, but like I don't understand why we're being like that and not like yeah and we're not treating, you know, other asylum seekers in the same way. Yeah, yeah, we need to look at that.
0: I mean, it's yeah, a conversation. I think that needs to be had, and um, it's it's really important to point it out because it's yeah. very glaring. I think, yes, especially the, at the moment. Yes, yeah. yeah, it is. You're right. But in the meantime, all these. I mean, the world is so turbulent and uncertain at the moment. It's it's really dreadful, and it is a nice feeling to be able to give a safe haven for, it is. for all those people who have been. Through
1: it so is, much. isn't it? I mean, I genuinely think. Knowing that, like you've you know you've bought a sleeping bag for somebody, or you've you know bought bed linen or whatever, it makes me feel less helpless. You know, to be able to do small, tangible things to make another human being's life mm. more comfortable at a time when they are so in upheaval, it helps.
0: Well, Marion, it's been absolutely a pleasure as always to talk to you.
1: Same same Roshan Ingle
0: <laughs> you always make me laugh and then you always make me think as well and I really appreciate that and I can't wait for the next Welsh book that's I don't know if that's an exclusive here on the women's podcast I'm going to pretend it is anyway <laughs> it is. We're gonna, great we're going to have another Welsh book this is very exciting and uh, good luck with all the rest of your publicity and all the rest of your work and I hope you get a good rest after all of it yes
1: I'm going to go walking in Sicily I went. I saw The Godfather, The Godfather Two, for the first time, and oh yeah, you know me and my sudden wild enthusiasm, enthusiasms. Yes. yes, Sicily, Sicily, is the your mafia. New okay, yeah, the it mafia. Is. Yes. The mafia. Where do I sign up, lads?
0: You'll be making fresh pasta now.
1: Oh, I will. I will. Yeah, yeah. And then just having to duck, duck. Listen, I'll be back in ten minutes, lads. I just have to go and murder someone. Hold oh, on, just a quick assassination. I'll be back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Contract killing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, helping a friend out.
0: Well, Marion Keys, thank you very much. Or I should say, gracias. Is that what they say initially?
1: Yes, yes. (laughs) Gracias.
0: And And kiss. And And I tap
1: you on the face, Rosie. I tap you on the face. You do that a lot in The Godfather. (laughs) Men tap each other on the face. Ciao, Bella. Ciao, Bella. (laughs) Arrivederci. (laughs)
0: That's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Marion Keys and you all need to go and get again, Rachel, if you haven't already. It's brilliant. That's it from me. The podcast is produced by me, Rosie Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.